Please take a seat. And let's pray together. Heavenly Father, our Lord, we praise you that you have indeed set your hope in us as we have sung. We praise you that you are great in love, in power, in wisdom. We praise you that you speak to us. And we pray now that as you speak to us that word of hope that you would set it in our hearts again. And that as we have just sung, that you would enable us to live for you, uh, to dedicate our lives uh, to your glory as you would have us do. And so, Father, give us humble and soft hearts before your word now. Amen. It's worth uh, turning in your Bibles to page 1148 and 49, where 1 Corinthians 7 is. And also, hopefully inside your service sheets is an outline Uh, which will guide you as as we go along uh, through that passage. And uh, as you're grabbing the outline, you'll probably see, or you will see, a picture on the top of it. And let me ask you, as you look at that picture, have you ever felt like the boy in the picture? It's a great moment. It's it's one of my favourite pictures, a a moment of anticipation. It's a train station, a platform. A train seems to be on the way and... uh, In the background you can see a businessman who has his back to where the train is coming he doesn't seem that interested and then off to the left there's a group of friends absorbed in some sort of banter and again not that interested but then there's the boy who is waiting, straining his neck, hoping to see what's coming round the corner. For the boy this is it, this is the main event of the day or the week or perhaps even of his whole life, this is what he's been waiting for. He's going to see the train. All else seems to have faded into the background for him as he puts his hand in his pockets and he strains around the corner and then the moment comes. Can you imagine it? As the train pulls into the station and he shouts, look, the train is here. Let me ask you again, do you ever feel like that boy? Perhaps not about trains, you're too grown up for that now, but do you ever feel that same sense of longing? of waiting for something to come your way, something that will make the difference. Perhaps it's in your current situation, waiting for a change. Maybe at work you're waiting for that change, waiting for things to be less busy or less pressured or less draining, desperate for that change. Waiting to finally get some sort of recognition for the work you are doing. Or perhaps it's your current relationship situation, your married but your marriage is on its knees and you're not sure you have the energy or the love to get it back up again or you're just exhausted and the children are still very young and your life seems to be a blur of early mornings and sleepless nights and nappies and cowpole and baked beans and school runs and you think it will be better later other than those who are later on in that same journey, uh, parents of older children are waiting for change too. Waiting for their child to speak to them again. Waiting for them to come home. Waiting. Or perhaps it's not your current situation that you'd like to change, but you'd like a whole new one altogether. At work you're looking for a new job, perhaps even a whole new career, and so you're forever on the lookout for something new, something better. 
Or perhaps it's just a job that you long for. Any job. And until you get it, you feel like your life is in limbo. Or perhaps it's a new relationship that you want, that you're unmarried and you'd love to be married. Love to share your life with someone. Love to have someone say, I choose you. Or perhaps you're married and you're without a child and you'd love to have one. You'd know you'd be a great parent and you're waiting. Perhaps it's not the current situation or a new one that you crave, but you long for the days of the past, the, the glory days. Perhaps when you were a worker and you felt like what you did actually mattered, people noticed. Or you longed for, for the relationship you had with your spouse before they passed away. You longed for the days when the house wasn't as quiet as it is now. Or perhaps you're married and you just long for the days when you actually had fun together. You want those days back. It's easy, isn't it, whatever our situation is, to wait long for change. Like the boy in this picture, straining our neck, hoping it will come soon and hoping when it does it's the change that will make all the difference. Well, if you've ever felt like that, 1 Corinthians 7 is going to be enormously helpful. Because in these verses, our Lord, our great shepherd is going to lead us. And what he's going to do is he's going to take us from the very situation that we want out of and he'll take hold of us. And rather than show us the way to get out of it, he'll lead us back in and say, this is the place I've called you to. The first thing he does for us uh, in our passage that you can see on the outline, the the second point there, is uh, he shows us what you need to know while you wait. He's going to show us four things. The first of them, perhaps the most important of them is this. You see it there in verse 31. As you live in whatever your current situation is, as you perhaps wait for some sort of change, know this, change is coming. More change than you could possibly imagine. Do you see it there in verse 31? This world, in its present form, is passing away. You want change? Think on this, says the Lord, all of this, everything, absolutely everything, everything that props up your life, everything that you long for, everything that you depend on, is about to change. And so as you live in whatever your situation is, you must view it through that reality. Because as verse 29 tells us, time is short. It's a great phrase that says this moment that we live in is a critical one. A moment weighted with opportunity, a moment with much at stake and there's not much of it, not much time. You see, what God is doing for us in uh, verse 31 and 29 is he is rewriting our calendars because he knows the danger of living life by our own human-made calendars. The ones that, that say, I need to have done this by the time I'm 25 or I should have been married by now or I didn't plan life like this. Or I thought the kids would have all grown up by now and I'd be free to be doing other things. Whatever it is that is in your calendar. The Bible says that all that happens when we live life by our own human-made calendars is that we get more and more anxious. Because while we know that life is never as neat as that, we still make our plans and we still live life as if it is. And so we grow ever anxious that we're missing out or we're falling behind. But God says, your calendar doesn't set the path for you. I do. 
And in my calendar there is one big day left that should have a big red circle around it in your calendar saying this is the day this world passes away. And so while we wait for this change, we are to live life like the great German theologian Martin Luther said. He said, I have two dates in my diary, today and that day. Now if we live life that way, uh, what is today, this day and every day before that great day going to be about? What should we be doing? Well, you see it there in verse 19. Second half, the second sentence of verse 19 tells us straight. It says, this is what today is about for you. Keeping God's commands is what counts. What's going to make a difference today? What's going to make today uh, count in your diary? What's going to make it a day where you haven't missed out on the opportunities that are there? Well, today for a Christian is about one thing. Serving God is what counts. Why? Why? Well, because of another day, a day in our past that has made this day today so different for us. A day that has made that day that is yet to come such a joyful prospect for us. It was, in fact, the day that set the clock ticking. The day the Lord of heaven and earth died for you. The day uh, that verse 23 speaks of when it speaks of his death and it says, that day you were bought at a price. That day, uh, God drew a great circle around your whole life and said, mine. And the day he rose from the dead tells you that your hope of what's to come, of that day, is utterly bound up in him. That today and tomorrow and whatever else this week may hold for you is not going to be futile, it's because he rose from the dead. That you can actually do things that will count, that will echo into eternity, is because he rose from the dead. And so what counts today for you is your labour in the Lord, serving him because he has walked into your life with his gospel of grace and he has drawn that big circle around you and he said, live for me. What counts is serving God. Now I reckon up to this point in our passage, uh, nothing groundbreaking has been said by Paul. Uh, We know that's what life's about for a Christian. Of course my life's about serving God. And we want to say, well, yes, sign me up. Serving God, count me in. I I want to be about that. Show me where. Show me the best place, the the best situation where things will be perfect so that I can do that the way I want to do it. Where's the best place for me? Is it as a single person or married? Is it without kids or with them? Is it in this job or perhaps a different one? Is it when I'm at the peak of health or when I'm struggling with illness? Is it in a time of great happiness or when I'm struggling with grief? Perhaps it's when I'm young and full of energy or or maybe it's when I'm older and a bit wiser. Well, I serve him best if I'm rich or poor. Well, the answer as to where is written all throughout our passage. Verse 17, you see it first. Where? Each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. Verse 20, again, now each one should remain in the situation he was in when God called him. And in case we're hard of hearing or slow to understand, he says it one more time, verse 24, brothers, each man as responsible to God should remain in the situation God called him to. Once you've been freed by Christ Jesus, no one is enslaved. You are never bound to the situation you are in. You are bound to the Lord wherever you are. 
And so Paul says to us, undue concern to change your status, to change your situation, it's just a new form of slavery. You cannot be any more free than you already are, even if you were a slave, Paul says in this passage. Each and every situation represents the perfect place to serve your God. Time is short. What counts is serving him, so stay put and get on with it. And as for how? Well, that's the final thing he wants us to know while we wait. You see it there in verse 29. We need to know what we're actually waiting for. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it was not theirs to keep. And those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. It's an incredible passage, isn't it? And if you're in a small group, I I suspect you could stay in those verses for, for hours and hours, perhaps weeks on end, trying to unpick it all. You want to know how radical Christian living is? Well, there it is in these verses. It's not where you find yourself that matters. It's where your heart is when you're there. They're confronting words. Married? Well, live as if you didn't have a wife. I love my wife. I can't imagine living without her and yet that's what I see here in front of me in the Bible. And so God says to me, what of the flip side, Andrew? You're married, well that's good and we saw that last week but don't live in your marriage as if you don't have a God. Don't live as if she is all there is. And to those who mourn, well don't grieve as if there's not a God who walks into that situation and even there has something to say. Even there has the potential to change that situation. Even there promises you that there will come a day where he will wipe those tears. Don't grieve as if you have no hope. And to those who are happy, those who rejoice in the things of this world, don't rejoice as if this is as good as it gets, that this is a good enough heaven. Rejoice instead, Jesus says, that your names are written in heaven. And if you're buying something, don't own it as if without it you'd be empty. He is your portion, not these things. And to those who use the things of this world, he says, don't live as if these things shape you, as if they tell you who you are. Only he does that. And so enjoy them, they're good gifts from him, but use them for what they were made for, for his glory. And so whatever your situation is, don't let it define you, says Paul. Rather live for him right there. Your heart uh, holding loosely to the situation, but holding very tightly to him. Let me ask you, how are you going in your situation when it comes to these things, when it comes to realising that time is short, when it comes to remaining there, when it comes to serving him? Well, let me show you what it looks like. I I said last week, if you were here, that there are two things, two people that have caused me to be thankful uh, in recent times, two people who have received the grace of God. We talked about one last week. Let me mention another who I think epitomises what it looks like to serve God in your situation. He's a Christian brother that I've known uh, pretty much for the whole time that I've been here uh, and I'm very thankful for him. He's a man who is uh, very old and literally passing away. 
He's increasingly immobile. And more and more he has insurmountable health problems that nothing in this world is going to answer. And recently he's moved into permanent care. Now, I met up with him a few weeks ago of an afternoon and uh, in a place that as I walked in I thought, I couldn't cope here. But as I met him, as I walked into this room which had nothing but a bed and him lying on it immobile, there was a man whose heart was full, full of the grace of God, full of literally the songs of God's grace. He's got so many in his memory, he just sings them to himself. He knows time is short. He knows what he's meant to be doing. He knows where he's being called, right there. And he's holding very loosely to that bed, yet very tightly to his Saviour. I wish I handled my situation with half the peace that he does. How about you? How's your situation going, whether it is great or a real struggle? Well, let me encourage you this week in your small groups to be chatting about that together and encouraging each other. But what our passage is going to do is it's going to apply this principle that we've seen to two situations, two specific situations that in fact actually cover all of us. He's going to speak to the situation of being unmarried and the situation of being married. Firstly, he says, this is what waiting will look like if you're unmarried. And he says, the first thing you need to know is this. Go back to verse 7. If if you're single, this is the first thing you need to know about that situation. It's a gift. Paul, uh, himself single, says, it's great. I'm content being single. I love it. I wish everyone was as content as I am. It's a good gift because it gives me a place to serve God. In verse 7, you see, when it comes to relationships, there's two possible gifts you can have. You can either have the gift of marriage or the gift of singleness. Neither gift is superior, both gifts are good and God chooses which one you receive at this point in time. And so if you're here today and you're single, then you have the gift of singleness at this time. If you do get married in the future, you'll exchange gifts as a widower exchanges gifts. You can't say I don't have the gift in the same way that a married person can't can't say I don't have the gift of marriage. And so if you're asking yourself, uh, do I have the gift of singleness? If you are single at this moment, then yes, right now you do. In the future you may get married and then you'll have a different gift. And so if it is a gift, if it is a place to serve God, what's that going to involve? Well, firstly, you see it there in verse 26. It involves, uh, which is not surprising what we've seen, remaining in your situation. Verse 26, we're told time is short, therefore stay where you are. It's a good place to be. And let me say that uh, I think knowing this means that I think the Christian community has done often a great disservice to those who are unmarried, those who are single. Often uh, trying to convince them that there is a a better place for them to be. I listened to this quote by uh, John Chapman, uh, an Australian evangelist who seems to have been around forever. I reckon he's about 200 Uh, by now. He's a a great man who's been single all of those years, however many. He says this, by the time I was 30 I was thinking I had decided to stay single because by then I had carved out both a ministry and a way of life that I enjoyed. Uh, I had seen John Stott and others model uh, the, the single man in ministry and so I didn't worry much. Although my friends urged me to get going before it was too late. In fact, my worst periods were between 25 and 35 when my 
well-meaning friends would take me on long, meaningful walks and tell me how important it was that I should be married. Some even suggested that my ministry would be adversely affected if I were not. It would have been great if they'd read their Bibles, says John. God says to the single person, stop worrying about finding a partner and concern yourself with serving me. And the second thing he'd say to the single person is in verse 27, he says, don't pursue a wife or a husband. It's not that Paul is against romance or against being open to a relationship, but he says, don't make that what life is about for you. Like the boy on the station, everything is about waiting for that. God says, don't be forever peering over the fence, wondering if the grass is indeed greener. Life for you is not about finding a relationship. You have a relationship with the Lord Jesus. Delight in him. Pursue intimacy with him. And besides, remember that this world, including marriage, is passing away. And the third thing he'd say to the single person is this, verse 28. Realise what marriage is actually like. Don't uh, develop your picture of uh, marriage from a wedding day at the height of summer, a glorious day, everything perfect. Perhaps use verse 28 instead. Those who marry will face many troubles in this life. They don't put that on the tin, do they? The irony uh, for the single person uh, striving to find a spouse is that if you actually get what you're striving for, you open yourself up to a whole new range of troubles. And the word troubles in verse 28 has within it the meaning of chasing after something you can't grasp. If we devote ourselves to the good thing of marriage as if it was the ultimate prize that our life is about getting this thing. And the Bible says we do ourselves a great disservice because the more weight of expectation we place on marriage, the more we will be anxious if we ever do get married that it is not delivering what we thought it would. C.S. Lewis, who knew his share of singleness and marriage and then singleness again, puts it like this. He says, most people, if they really learn to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that they cannot have in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us, uh, the longings that when we first fall in love or first think of a foreign country or first take up a subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not now speaking of what would be called an unsuccessful marriage or a holiday or career. I'm speaking about the best possible ones. There was something we have grasped at at the first moment of longing which just fades in reality. Even the best gifts, God says, make miserable gods. Even the best marriages are troubled. It's not that singleness is without troubles and complexities. Paul isn't saying that, but he is saying to the single person, marriage is not going to solve them. It's just going to give you a whole range of new ones. And all of this flies in the face of the myth of marriage, doesn't it, happily ever after? The sort of myth that can push a single person to think, if I was married, I'd be more joyful than I am now. I'd be less lonely. I'd never struggle with sexual temptation. I'd never be insecure. God says to you, these are not the symptoms of a single person's heart. They are the symptoms of a sinner's heart who is not at rest, not satisfied in Jesus. 
And the final thing he would say to the uh, single person in this passage as, as we wait for that day is verse 32, enjoy the opportunity of single-hearted devotion to the Lord. He says, I would like you to be free from concern in verse 32. Uh, an unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, he can, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. Now don't misread these verses. They're not saying marriage is a sin or less spiritual. We saw that last week. But it is saying that a married person's heart is divided. And those who are married know why. We saw it last week in Song of Songs chapter 8. The sort of love that marriage demands of a person is incredibly powerful. If you're married, you have bound your heart to another person. Your heart is sealed with them, their name. It belongs to them. The love your heart has for that person is as strong as death, as unyielding as the grave, and they are rightfully jealous for your devotion, your time, your energies. It's a love just like the one the Lord asks of us. And so God says to the single person, enjoy not having your heart pulled in two directions. It's not sinful to have it pulled like that, but it can be and it's always tricky to navigate. So God says, while marriage is a very good gift, it's also very good to be free from the concern of it, free to give your heart to the Lord. There's much in this chapter, isn't there, for the unmarried person to think through and to chat about. So let me encourage you again in your groups to, to be doing that with one another. And remember as you do what what Paul uh, is a pain to say throughout this passage. You see it there in verse 35 onwards. He's not laying down a law here. He's not saying if you're unmarried you must stay that way. This is wise counsel rather than a law. He's saying you are free to marry if you have the opportunity. You're free not to. Whatever you do it's about serving the Lord, not about those things. The passage also speaks to those who are married and again It says the same thing as it did to the single person back in verse 7. It says, remember that marriage is a gift. But there is a question all the way through this chapter about those whose marriages feel far from a gift. Marriages that are under great strain. Marriages that you can't see how it's a good place to be serving the Lord. Well, if that's you, again, the Lord, our shepherd, will guide your heart. And he may well say in what is a tough situation for you, not what you want to hear, nor perhaps even what your friends may tell you, but he will tell you what you need to hear if you want to serve him. And you see it there in verse 27. Are you married? Don't seek a divorce. Remain married. Earlier in the chapter he applies that to two specific marriage situations, to to a Christian marriage under strain and then a a marriage of a Christian and a non-Christian. And he does it, I think, to answer those who think, I could serve God better if I was out of this marriage. And to the Christian marriage under great strain, he says in verse 10, to the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and a husband must not divorce his wife. Scripture says that it is never serving God to divorce. Never. A cross-shaped marriage is an unseparated marriage, even under strain. And then, as now, the thought crosses people's minds, I might be better off out of this situation. 
It's a, a culture a bit like Corinth where, where it's cut your losses. Life should be better than this. This is not what I signed up for. I want off this train. I'll wait for another. I'd feel I'd be in a better place with God if I was not stuck in this marriage. Well, if those thoughts have crossed your minds, hear the words of scripture. A husband and wife must not divorce. And see who gives the instruction in verse 10. It is the Lord, the risen Lord Jesus, the one who has drawn that circle around your life, who bought you at a price, who has shown beyond a shadow of a doubt he is committed to your good. He says, remain. And if divorce does happen, there are only two ways forward, says God. Remain unmarried or be reconciled so you can remain married. And the kindest time to tell a person that is when they're struggling in their marriage, not when their heart has moved on and and is looking for the next one. And Paul has advice for those, a Christian who is married to an unbeliever. And once more the instruction is simple. In these last days where time is short, remain in your marriage. A marriage is a marriage and so those whom God has put together, let no one put asunder which I think raises the question that you see answered in verse 14. Why would a Christian who is married to a non-Christian, why would they want to separate from their unbelieving spouse? Well, verse 14 says it's probably the Christian who wants to serve God, whose heart is in the right place and they're thinking, I want to live spiritually, I I want to do that. I want to honour God and I don't think I can in this marriage. My, my, My partner doesn't believe so this isn't going to work. Well, says God, do you want to see the power of my grace? The power of a life shaped by Christ crucified. It is a life that even in a marriage like that can be incredibly infectious. You see that in verse 14? For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Paul here is talking about, I think, an experience we know well as Christians that right at the start of this letter we were told that we have been made holy in Christ. His blood has made us holy. You can't be any more holy than you are now if you've come to him in faith. But then there's also, isn't there, the ongoing process of growth in holiness as God's grace changes our behaviour and our attitudes and our actions and that's ongoing. We are growing in holiness Paul here is saying that is true in the mixed marriage. The more time the unbelieving spouse spends with their believing husband or wife who is becoming more and more like Christ, the more they will be affected by that. No, a Christian spouse cannot save their partner just by their behaviour, but they can infect them with this holiness. And what determines whether an unbelieving husband or wife is made holy is their willingness to remain in the marriage which will without a doubt have lasting effect on their life. And I reckon you see this played out in reality. I, I know many uh, mixed uh, marriages, but the two I've known best in, in the time we've been here are two godly Christian women who are growing in holiness day by day because of Jesus. And I've seen that even in the time I've been here rub off on their husbands. That's fantastic. That's their life's project and it's a good one. It's a way to serve the Lord. And I guess their great hope is that as that change happens, as their husband finds their their behaviour and actions and thoughts changing over time, they will long to know the one who can bring that sort of change about, not just to a few behaviours but to their whole heart. 
And I know that's their prayer for their husbands and it is my prayer as well. So God says, in your marriage, serve me by remaining there, by remaining holy in it for your partner's sake, for your children's sake. And as we close, see yet again there is freedom here. Verse 15, we are told if the unbeliever decides to leave the marriage, if they divorce their believing spouse, then the believer is not bound to stay for there's nowhere for them to stay. But that can't be a quick decision, can it? Because as Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 13, Christian love always hopes, always sees a way back, always thinks there's a way to turn things around. God is a God of reconciliation and so must we be. But there may come a time when a Christian deserted by an unbelieving spouse needs to be at peace, God says, rather than endlessly battling with a non-Christian who never wants back. There's so much for us to think about in this chapter. I do hope you have time to think and pray and talk about it with one another. But as we close, remember this. This world is passing away. Time is short. Serving God is what counts. And where do you do it? Well, remain in your place and remember what you're actually waiting for. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you are a God who does not stand far off, but as we read in the psalm, Psalm 23, that you are our great shepherd who walks with us through all of life. And we thank you that you know our days better than we do, and you know our situations, and we thank you for that, and we pray that you would strengthen us to serve you wherever you would have us be. And we pray this for your honour. Amen.